0: Let us pray. These are your words, O God. Humble us to speak their weight. Strengthen us to hear their truth. Unbind us to live their call. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Our second reading picks up in Galatians chapter 3, where the last left off. We start with verse 23. Let us listen together for God's word to us. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be reckoned as righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What shapes us? What is it that makes us who we are what is the source of our identity it's our past our family history our experiences our successes our losses these things along the way they make us who we are it's our practices our habits our routines our disciplines these things also shape us it's our community our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our church family, the people that we put ourselves around, this also shapes us. And then, of course, there's culture, the media that we absorb day after day, hour by hour, the social norms in which we participate, the popular values that are just out there in the world that we live within. All of these things shape us. What about religion? Does religion shape who we are? Or are our deepest convictions downstream of all of these other forces? Is religion a source of our identity or is it a consequence of our identity? Is it merely an expression of the ways that all of these other forces have shaped who we are? We have to acknowledge how difficult these questions are to answer. We understand far less about ourselves than we most often realize. We could spend years with the help of a professional in introspection and and striving for personal growth and still only scratch the surface of understanding who we are. Our own hearts are a mystery to us. So with all of these questions about what it is that forms our identity, what are we to make of Paul calling the church to embrace a new identity in Christ? Is it even within our power to embrace a new identity? Identity maybe is a bit like sailing. We set our course, we navigate the waters, we raise and lower the sails, but we are nevertheless driven by the wind, which is a power that is beyond our control. And when it comes to the question of our identity and the role that religion plays, we face a very special kind of challenge. Religion presents both promise and and danger to this question of identity the promise of religion in forming our identity is of course the promise of growth of transformation of change but the danger of religion is that instead of activating all of that change and transformation in us that it might just serve to bless the person we already are to provide a kind of divine sanction to who we are based on all of these other forces In April of 1994, the gruesome genocide in Rwanda began. A call went out on the radio and through the various channels of the Hutu militia that it was time to kill the Tutsis. And if they didn't, they themselves would be killed. And what followed was a period of about 100 days of brutality which cost the lives of more than 800,000 Rwandans, most of them Tutsis. Now the story we tell of this genocide is often that it's simple. Two warring tribes, Hutus and Tutsis, and age-old animosities that finally boiled over. But this is not at all the real story, or at least it's not the whole story of what happened in Rwanda. For centuries, Rwanda was a more or less stable society. It was a a monarchy, and there were different people groups in the kingdom of Rwanda, most notably the Hutus and the Tutsis. And the Tutsis were the uh, livestock owners, by and large, which meant they were a bit more wealthy. And the Hutus, by and large, were the farmers, and so they tended to not be quite as wealthy, though they were more numerous. So the divide between Hutu and Tutsi was not a divide of tribe, but it was a divide of class. These are people groups within a unified kingdom, and there were tensions among these uh, groups, tensions to be sure, but not tribal war. The Belgians colonized Rwanda in the 1900s, and when the Belgians came in, they saw that the Tutsis often occupied positions of wealth and higher status, and the Hutus, lower wealth, lower status. And coming with the presuppositions that the colonists came with, they assumed that if this African people group, the Tutsis, were wealthy and powerful, then they must have some influence in them that is not African. Because their prejudice against Africa was that it was all savagery, and that all of the people who were native to that land were were backwards and needed, of course, the colonists, to help them. So what they did was they introduced a racial distinction between Tutsis and Hutus, a racial distinction that didn't exist based on wealth and status. They also bring Christianity to Rwanda so that by the 1990s, 85% of the country is Christian. Rwanda was a Christian nation if ever there was one. And the nation was not divided into tribal regions. The Hutus and the Tutsis, they lived together in the same communities, the same villages. And they didn't attend separate churches or have different religions. They were all Christian and they worshiped together in the same congregations. But when that call went out for the killing to begin... Their group loyalty won the day. Their fear of the other rising in power won the day. And their Christian identity mattered very little. In the aftermath of the genocide, a Catholic cardinal came to address a a gathering of church leaders in Rwanda. And this cardinal asked these church leaders, is the blood of tribalism deeper than the waters of baptism? To which one of the leaders said, yes, it is. In 2009, Emmanuel Katongale wrote a book called Mirror to the Church. Katongale is a Catholic priest, a theologian. He has done some teaching at Duke Divinity School here in the United States. Katangale is the son of a mixed marriage. His mother is Hutu. His father is Tutsi. They left Rwanda before he was born, so he was raised in the neighboring country of Uganda. And so the tragedy of this genocide touches him deeply, even though he was spared by it. Because of his heritage, because of his Christian faith, he feels closely connected to the suffering of Rwanda. And as the name of his book suggests, his book, A Mirror to the Church, What Katangale wants to do is to hold up the situation in Rwanda to the church in the United States as a kind of mirror. Not because he's predicting that anything like the genocide would unfold here, but because when he looks at American Christianity... He sees some of the very same weaknesses, some of the very same deficiencies that allowed the genocide in Rwanda to take place. The outcome, of course, of these deficiencies in the United States will be different, but he argues that the sickness is the same. And for him, it has to do with identity. With identity. He writes this. Maybe the deepest tragedy of the Rwandan genocide is that Christianity didn't seem to make a difference. Rwandan identity, like American identity, like any identity, was shaped by many different powerful forces, by history, by race, by class, by politics. And Christianity in Rwanda was not capable of disrupting all of those identities. Instead, it seemed to amplify them. He writes this, Rather than questioning, resisting, and interrupting the formation of identity through racial, economic, and national categories, Christianity so often affirms, intensifies, and radiates these identities. When this happens, Christianity becomes little more than a thin veneer over what we imagine our natural identity to be. He continues, in Africa, as in America, there is a multitude of powers and stories that try to define who we are the color of our skin, the nation of our birth, the history of our culture, or the characteristics of our tribe. But when I baptize someone into the church of Jesus Christ, I see that God is making a claim on them. Are they still black? Are they still white? Are they still Rwandan? Are they still American? Perhaps. But there is a real sense in which our identity gets confused, mixed up with Christ's identity in baptism. Who we are becomes, or at least ought to become, confused and confusing to others. In this passage, he's starting to sound a lot like Paul who says to the Galatians, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In the Galatian church, Paul is confronting them with the challenge of their identity. The Galatians have been finding their identity in their heritage, in the fact that they are descended biologically, genealogically from Abraham. Abraham and that that heritage is expressed in the practice of the law, and that this is what constructs and maintains their identity. And Paul's basic argument to them is that in Christ, something has happened that fundamentally shifts, or to use Katangale's word, confuses the composition of the church's own identity. To the point where he can say to them, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Paul's being very deliberate in the categories that he is highlighting here. He uses Jew and Greek as a shorthand for national identity, political identity, because all of us, whether we live in the 1st century or the 21st century, we all belong to particular political entities, and we are shaped by our national concerns and our political allegiances. The nation that we belong to is woven into our very sense of self. And Paul is saying that in Christ even something as powerful as a political identity is changed. And then he says there is no longer slave or free. We don't have slaves anymore, at least in the United States, and certainly not the way that they did in the ancient world, but these need to be thought of as economic categories, categories of class that fundamentally structure society. There are discrepancies of course in class and wealth today that we are familiar with and whether by birth or by achievement we occupy each of us a particular economic position relative to others. We feel at home in certain economic climates, environments and not at home in others and we often define ourselves and others along these lines. And Paul is saying that in Christ The economic identity is changed. And then he says there's no longer male and female. And this gets to our social identity, that we belong in a world that has social norms and rules, maybe more rigid in the ancient world than they are today, but they still exist today. And these categories, these norms, they recall creation itself which is rooted in the work and the will of God. And so for this reason, this category in particular might be the most deeply established, the hardest of all to transcend. And Paul says, even in this one, things have changed in Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is no dummy. He knows perfectly well that these categories don't magically disappear the moment we take on the label of Christian. On the contrary, I think he chooses these labels because he knows how durable these aspects of our identity are. He knows how hard these parts of ourselves are to get around to understand even. These are some of the most deep-seated parts of our own identity. But when we have been baptized into Christ, when we have clothed ourselves with Christ, a new dynamic takes hold of us. And all of those old identity markers, they get pushed and shoved around they get rearranged even subordinated they bend and they flex and they give in ways we never allowed them to give before they still define us but they define us differently than they once did I likened our identity formation to sailing in which we are subject to the winds, and in sailing you are subject to the winds, but you are not powerless. And any experienced sailor, which I am not, but any experienced sailor knows that you can, in fact, sail against the wind. You have to learn the technique, you have to learn how to tack, and there's a lot of back and forth, and it's not straight-line progress, and it's hard, technical, difficult, slow work, but it's possible. The easier way is to let the wind carry us. And then to let our religion simply bless the direction that the wind happens to be blowing. This is not a new identity in Christ, even if it goes under the name Christian. Katangale writes, The witness of the biblical story is that God's people are always invited to say no to the idols of their age and rise up by the power of the spirit as a holy interruption. And he says that we do this in part by resisting the the divisions society imposes on us. The political divisions the economic divisions, the social divisions. We are called to embrace a new identity in Christ that is confused and it is confusing because it doesn't follow the typical patterns. It isn't neatly governed by our politics or our wealth or our status. It's infiltrated by the disturbance of Jesus Christ and all of the old markers of identity have to give way. They have to make room. And this is not how things are supposed to work we're supposed to line up with our team with our tribe with our party with our group whatever that group may be because then things make sense then we make sense to others and to ourselves but that's not who we are not anymore remember just in chapter 2 paul says i have been crucified with christ and I don't live anymore, but Christ now lives in me. Now, Paul says, we sail into the wind. Now, we make a concrete and persistent effort to let our identity be found first of all in Christ, to let our lives be shaped first of all by his example. Katangale says we learn who we are as we walk together in the way of Jesus. If Christ is just a thin veneer that affirms and intensifies all our old identities, then we are, as Paul says, prisoners. And we have experienced so much for nothing, and we offer the world nothing. But if we are willing to face The wind if we are willing to clothe ourselves with christ if we are willing to walk in the way of jesus together then we will learn who we are we will learn who we are called to be and we will learn what it means that we are all one in christ let us pray God, we pray that you would give us wisdom, give us clarity, give us courage that we might not rely on the old identities, but might open ourselves to your work, shaping us, reshaping us, leading us to be your faithful people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.